So hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, I've actually written a script for myself, and it feels a little weird that I'm going to be reading from a script, but I feel like if I start speaking extemporaneously, there'll be no oxygen left in the room. Um, so I'm just going to go from the script, and, and we'll go from there. Just thought I'd let you know. Uh, and so just, hi, I'm Rob. I'm the host of How Sound, which is a podcast about audio storytelling. The, uh, the tagline is the backstory to uh, great radio storytelling. And today I'm going to be interviewing two winners of the Third Coast Awards. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Colin McNulty, who's up here with me today. And a little bit later, Joe Richmond's going to join us. Um, and he'll be up here, and we'll talk to Joe about his winning piece as well. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I produce House Sound every two weeks, and basically what the idea is is to take a story and try to pull back the curtain on it and find out what makes it tick. And I'm going to come up with as many different metaphors as I can for what I do on the show, which is why I have a script, which I'm not even reading from right now. You see what I mean? Like, if I just keep going, we're never going to get out of here. So, um, and so I just try my darndest to explain how excellent stories get told, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. For a few years, House Sound has been a production of PRX, but I'm really, really, really pleased to tell you today that How Sound is now a co-production of PRX and Transom.org. PRX, for those who don't know, is, a, uh, is an online marketplace for public radio stories. They also distribute programs, and they're the host of Radiotopia, which is a podcast network. Transom is the... Do you guys know Transom? You must know Transom. Well, if you don't, there you go, Lauren. Thank you. Um, Transom is the online source for audio storytelling. If you want to learn how to produce stories or you need some inspiration, really, like transom.org is the place to go. Transom also offers workshops, which Tobin referenced there, um, workshops on radio storytelling, and I teach those workshops, and I can tell you more about those afterwards if you like. Um, so Joe will come up here in just a little while. He needs a little break after running the, the show downstairs, uh, and he did a great job of it, although I, I was getting hives. Some of the things that were said just made me go, oh, my God, you're kidding me. Um, we can talk about that over a beer later. Um, but I want to introduce Colin. I want to introduce Colin. And here's the first thing I want to say about Colin. Colin is a cheater. He's a radio cheater. And you'll hear why exactly in just a second. All right. Um, Colin produces for Whistledown Productions. They produce all manner of audio content in England, uh, including programs for the BBC. And Colin has produced documentaries on Watergate, the Vietnam War, Rupert Murdoch, and the Great Train Robbery, which I definitely want to go back and hear. The documentary we're going to talk about today is an obvious Third Coast winner. You'll hear why in two seconds here. It's called Burroughs at 100. It's a celebration of the 100th birthday of poet, writer, and icon, and iconoclast. You say that's yeah, true? That's yeah. A good word. Uh, icon and iconoclast, William Burroughs. And it's narrated by Iggy Pop, who's sort of a, the granddaddy of, of punk rock. And let's just listen to the opening. It's about 30 seconds long or so. You ready? Nobody seems to ask the question what words actually are and exactly their relationship to the human nervous system. A warning the following program contains references to homosexuality drug use, sex with aliens, violence, and kitty cats. What did you expect? (laughs) See? Cheater, right? What were you thinking? How can I get an award at Third Coast? (laughs) I'll do a documentary on William Burroughs because of that voice. No, no, wait a minute. That won't get me an award. Uh, I'm going to add Iggy Pop as host. That will secure the award. Yeah. So why the choice to have Iggy Pop do the narration? Um, Well, because he's uh, sort of the epitome of Burroughs himself. You know, quite a lot of rock and roll. Like, whoop, can nobody hear me? 
Is that better? Because um, he's a lot like Burroughs himself. He cites him as a big influence. Uh, and I sort of just appealed to his heartstrings a bit and said, you should do this for not very much money for the BBC um, because you like William Burroughs. Uh, and he said he'd do it. Um, but he's got a great, great voice. And what do you mean by a appeal? Like, what was that phone call like? Was it a phone call? Uh, I dealt with his agent uh, who lives in Poland, and I never spoke to Iggy uh, before I actually went to Miami to, from London to, to meet him. So the first time I met him was at the door, so it was very scary. Uh, but he was very friendly. And, I mean, you hear in the program when I actually first meet him. Um, but, yeah, he was great. And I had a really limited amount of time with him as well. It was two days, I think three or four-hour sessions both days. Um, so it was really good. It had a good perk to that job. A good perk? Yeah. yeah. Well, to go to Miami and to meet Iggy Pop is all right. It's pretty cool. Um, but, yeah. Why don't we listen to the clip where you're just meeting him and then a little bit after that as well so people can hear more about the documentary. Cool. And here's the thing that I want you to listen to. Here's the thing that just struck me uh, completely by this, and that's how Iggy is positioned as the narrator in the story. He's, just, he's not the dude who's reading the lines in the story. He's doing oh so much more, and I've never actually heard a narrator sort of used in this particular way, uh, and I'll, you'll hear it here. This is William Burroughs. 100th birthday and uh, we're taking a look at his life his times and his work i didn't write this stuff but i'm willing to present all right, all right that's fine, man. <laughs> I, I will really hope you put that line in there i didn't write this stuff i'm not that close to the take of bbc4 this whole thing i'm gonna be honest with you presenter to me i feel like i should have a little hat hey ladies and gentlemen are you ready for star time ready to rumble that would i could do those voices at this particular time we'd like to introduce the star of the show colin mcnulty all right let's go let's do it you ready? I'm ready. Now, I've met William Burroughs once and have been inspired by him, but I am not an expert on Burroughs, unlike this guy. I'm Oliver Harris. I'm a professor of American literature. I'm the author and editor of 10 books on or about William Burroughs. <laughs> the strange thing is that a million people who never heard of William Burroughs can sing lines from the ticket that exploded. And that's because Burroughs' book is where Iggy Pop found the raw materials of Lust for Life. It's where Johnny N comes from, along with those hypnotising chickens and the flesh gimmick and the striptease in the torture film. Pop responded to the way Burroughs was working back in the 1960s in a kind of montage way that we now take for granted in the digital era, but Burroughs was pioneering it. This is coming out of some lust for life, all right. He's not just in my music. Burroughs is everywhere. He's in Dylan's Tombstone Blues. He's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Two Rows Behind Paul, right next to Marilyn Monroe. He inspired band names like The Soft Machine. Not a great band. And Steely Dan, which is named after a strap-on dildo in Naked Lunch. 
I didn't know that. Are you reeling in the year? The world was introduced to the phrase heavy metal in the book Nova Express. He worked with Kurt Cobain on a spoken word track. The priest, they called him. Fight tuberculosis, folks. As Lou Reed said, without William, there is nothing. So are you hooked? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the opening three minutes. <laughs> Uh, for what is it? Fifty-two minutes, fifty-five. Fifty-six thirty. Fifty-six. <laughs> you know, every second. <laughs> Agonizing, <right>? yeah, minutes. <laughs> um, so, did you catch that? Like Iggy's reading narration, Iggy's riffing. If Iggy's just like responding to things, like I've never heard a narrator used in that sort of way. Like the narrator's a character. He's also uh, feels like an interview subject because you ask right. later on in the piece you ask him actual questions about things like I've never really heard that sort of triangulation or maybe that's not the right word but I've never heard I've never heard someone utilized in that way. Can you talk about that at all? Uh, yeah, there, um, there's this thing in, in Britain on BBC Radio called the presenter, uh, which is different from the host in in the states, which involves in one-off documentaries. You get a range of presenters that are either really heavily involved or you get some presenters that are handed a script and paid some money to read a script because uh, they have some sort of personal involvement with the story or because people would like to hear somebody do So that's what this was. Um, and we realized we needed to get a bit more out of Iggy than just him reading a script. Um, I think I sent it over to him a couple days before and he said, yeah, that's fine. Um, and so we sort of needed an original contribution from Iggy in some way. Um, so it was always planned to get all the sort of offcuts of him. Uh, I didn't realize I was going to be in the program at all. Um, that was unintentional. So was him shouting my name at the beginning. That was my editor's decision. Um, so, yeah. I mean, him acknowledging I didn't write this stuff is sort of uh, anathema to the BBC. You know, they have to have, an, you know, the BBC's obsessed with authority, voices of authority. Um, I did a program on Vox Pops, which are man on the street interviews not too long ago, uh, and it took a long time for the BBC to do it, because why would we want to hear from ordinary people what's their authority? Um, not Man, not to diss the BBC at all. Yeah, so I've, that's sort of what no, that's their the name history rhyme of it. Uh, um, <laughs> but so there's so that's what why the program worked because it just circumvented that whole sort of process. I mean, BBC can be a bit of a celebrity machine sometimes, um, which but it also I don't know creates really great stuff. It's not all stodgy. Um, <laughs> Talk to me about managing Iggy. Uh, well, before we went, we knew that it's, uh, we don't think he can write, probably. I, that was just an assumption, because I had never spoken to him. Uh, we don't think he can de deliver. So I need to get as much of him being Iggy uh, as I could. Um, I could tell you a bit about yeah, his, do his house and stuff. Um, hopefully he doesn't hear this. Um, yeah, so I land in Miami. I got a text from Iggy saying, welcome to Interzone. Uh, and that was it. And then showed up driving around in the suburbs of Miami and came across this tiny little like bungalow house. And I was like, this cannot be right. Um, but then I saw him pull up in his giant Cadillac and he came in. Uh, and I walked in and it's just filled with like skulls and photos of himself. Um, and uh, he was hanging out in this like uh, on, a, on, a, on a 
hammock in the back by a canal. And he was really cool, like, we, and we sat and, you know, had some tea and stuff. Um, and I interviewed him that day just to sort of get a sense of him and tweak the script a bit so it sounds like it's, it's actual words rather than uh, me. Um, and so then the next day we recorded the script together and he was very difficult, uh, which was a good thing, uh, to produce. He, ve- he knew what he was doing and I should not, you know, he didn't need a producer. So it was, or at least he conveyed that a, b- a bit. How do you so, um, uh, he didn't take direction very well, but he's a friggin' rock star, you know. It's, <laughs> of course he doesn't take direction very well. Um, but that was a good thing in the end, because I got all that sort of back and forth and him, him fighting with me on things. and um, It's like that tattoo winner story, leaving a mark, which was, you know, her battling with, the, with her subject was what made it really, really good. Um, but yeah, he was difficult to manage, but that's a good thing. And, uh Yeah. My boss said, get, get him saying, you know, I'm going to make you a peanut butter sandwich. Get, get all that stuff. Get him wandering around in the kitchen. And miraculously, I came back with some of that somehow. Huh. You, you were telling me before we started talking here about his, the shower scene with Iggy? Oh, yeah. yeah. He, I saw him naked at one point. But <laughs> <laughs> I think most of the world has seen him naked. Um, so that was awkward. Um, and yeah, so I, he was very diff, uh, difficult towards the end. I was trying to get a photo of him, and I'm not a photographer. I couldn't figure out how the camera works. And he called me some sort of Yiddish word, and I can't remember what it was still. It was like a putz or something like that. So I got called a putz by Iggy Pop. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm wondering if he's a distraction. From? Well, from the story. So here, what, what are we doing? Here's this documentary about William Burroughs. Why him? Yeah, I've, and I've kept feeling like any time I've talked to people about the fact that I was going to be talking to you about this, that I needed to mention that Iggy was a part of it. And actually, you know what? It's about William Burroughs. So uh, is there a risk that bringing Iggy into the story, he, because he's so larger than life, that he's a distraction? Um, I don't know. Uh, I think it would be pretty boring if it was just sort of a straight presenter telling you about how great William Burroughs was and he did this, this, and this. I think it, it needed a level of honesty to it just to sort of pay respect to Burroughs a bit. Um, and, you know, Iggy fighting with me was a level of honesty that I think reflected the, the subject well. And he's, you know, he, he pretends at the beginning that he doesn't know Burroughs at all, but he, he was chatting with me. He's actually a very well-read man, and, you know, he was quoting books back to me that we didn't even use in the program, and he knew who Will Self was, who's in the program, knew all his books. So he sort of plays the part of the, the, the sort of brainless rock star, I guess. But um, uh, he's actually an incredibly smart man um, that, that knew quite a lot about Burroughs. So, you know, ergo, he's presenting. You get word of the day for ergo. Ergo, yeah, sorry about that. No, no, it's a good one. <laughs> you need to reward people for that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into radio? And before you answer that question, I just want you guys to know that soon, in the next few minutes or so, we'll just open up the floor and there's a microphone here in the middle and we'll t- start taking questions from people as well. So begin thinking about your questions if you would. So your background a bit? Um, I'm probably the least qualified person speaking at Third Coast, just to get that out there. Um, I, uh, I'm from Cleveland. <laughs> uh, I'm ready to say that. Uh, I moved to Chicago, uh, lived here for six years, and got into the... Um, London School of Economics for a master's degree, got over to London, uh, finished that, had no idea what I wanted to do, uh, didn't, I knew I didn't want to do academia, uh, and just started wandering around different production companies in London. Um, 
the way it works there is that the, a certain quota of BBC radio output has to be made by independent suppliers, and they're on an official supplier list. So there are companies that exist um, that do a lot of BBC content. So I was floating from place to place, did a three-month internship unpaid in, in London. I don't know how I did that. Um, and then stumbled upon Whistledown. Um, and it's a wonderful company in a converted 17th century chapel. That, so it's like this wonderful sort of you know, creative space, uh, and they uh, took me on to do a number of programs, uh, and I've been doing that for about four years. My first ever program was an hour-long program on Rupert Murdoch for the BBC, um, which was difficult, uh, to say the least. Did that win an award here? No, it went out on ReSound. Oh, it did? Okay. How is it that you got so neck-deep in documentary so quickly, not having a background in it? Can you talk about that shift, like how that happened? Uh... I don't know. It's, it was a real baptism of fire. Um, I think they liked the fact I was American. Uh, <laughs> that helps. I could do some voiceovers every once in a while. Um, sorry, what was the question again? How did I... Yeah, I'm just wondering about making that leap, like going from, you know, from the London School Nothing of Economics to... into documentary. Like, how did that happen exactly? Um... I could floating around to different companies. It was, you know, it's, it was a difficult time for, you know couple of years, well, less than a year, I guess, of not being paid and just trying to figure it out. And I think everyone kind of has to do that nowadays. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I learned by doing it. Editing was, was quite a baptism, you know. I had 24 hours of stuff for, for this Murdoch program to make into like, you know, 40 minutes um, without script. Uh, and that was hellish, but I somehow did it. Mm. Just pushed through. So this this piece was what was it fifty six thirty you said yeah so how do you have any thoughts on how to keep listeners interested in a story for an hour what do you have any tricks of the trade um, I've done I've made seven of them for the BBC it's called Archive on Four is the slot and that's the longest slot that exists on BBC Radio which is an hour um, uh, I suppose I think I mean structure is obviously important and you need to sort of pull the listener along and there needs to be enough revelatory material within it to sort of keep people engaged and interested interested i mean and your intro is obviously the most important thing you know if if there's an enjoyable two two minute intro you got them hooked for at least another 20 minutes maybe um so and i, I guess the easiest way to do that is with different themes along the way through the program so that you can sort of code things um in a structured thematic way that the themes sort of are stages on this grander story of whatever this, the thing is. Um, Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, for this, we, we pitched the program as uh, using cut-up. Do people know what cut-up method is, Burroughs? Where he'd literally take scissors to written material and just jumble it together. Um, uh, and we were going to do that with the whole program, uh, really? which would not work. Uh, we discovered quickly um, that's over the edge experimental. Um, so what we did, I made a, a draft version of the program, which was a straight biography, uh, and thought it was okay. Gave it to my editor, and he heard it, and he said, "Let me guess, does he die at the end?" Um, I said, yes, he does, in fact. He dies at the end of the program. So, he, we, so we got to cut this thing up uh, in a different way. And how we did that was we had the sort of straight chronological program that we then coded. Um, 
so we had the script, and you could code different sections, and we were thinking, what, what are the most important things about Burroughs? Uh, heroin is one, uh, sex is one, uh, naked lunch is one, all these other things. So we just took everything that related to those things and threw them into sections. Um, and it was very clunky, and it was in, uh, intentionally clunky uh, to do that, with Iggy sort of introducing each section sort of awkwardly. But normally when I do an hour-long program, you, you have those themes and those sections, and you just try and cleverly bring them together so it doesn't sound like they're different sections. This, this we purposefully made sound like different sections, so that sounded kind of like a cut-up. I actually have this section on cut-ups queued up here. One thing that I noticed that you guys did, and I don't know if this was conscious, is that there were sections of the documentary where it was sort of acts and tracks, narration, quote, narration, quote, narration, quote, not in any boring way because the quotes were awesome and the narration was excellent and that sort of thing, but it was just sort of not a lot of sound happening, just people talking. And then after about three or four minutes, suddenly all hell would break loose. Yeah. Um, and there would be a lot of mixing and editing. And this is one of those sections. So this cut-up section um, comes after, I think I timed it, I think it was three, three and a half minutes of just you know people talking about Burroughs and his process and that sort of thing and who he was as a man, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this section. All right, I'm going to take a break here. Take five or ten minutes and I'll be back. You can cut up the sentences or put them all together cut up cut up cut up cut up cut up project cut up cut up cut up cut up project okay cut up cut up montana iggy what do you think i don't know what that is so can you tell me uh just uh, what do you make of the, the cut up method how different is the cut up method really from what they used to call the magic eight ball <laughs> Do you yeah. know what that is? Yeah, or yeah. a Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a Ouija board for art people. <laughs> this is what it is. Language is a virus. Language is a virus. Virus is a language. Human scummery. Control is a virus. Language control. The virus. Language is a virus. Power. And the things that we want to express using the language are not as interesting, as useful, or as dynamic as things that the language could say itself if only you would let the language talk. The pretenses don't have much weight if you just give them a little push. But that was what I took the cut-up to be, basically. Brian Geisen was living with William Burroughs at the time in in, in the Beat Hotel in Paris. One day Burroughs would describe him as the only man I ever respected. It's while he was um, doing his artwork that he discovered the the cut-up. It occurred because I had a number of uh, sheets of newspapers and I took a a Stanley blade and, and cut through them and... Little bits and pieces uh, looked so amusing to me that I started jiggling them around as, as one would in a collage. And he showed it to William Burroughs, and Burroughs immediately started using that technique. Cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up, created a new way of writing a novel. Yeah. Were you involved in that process? Involved in that. Yeah, wasn't that great, right? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I made that. So that was all your production? Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't uh, mix it. Um, I did a rough mix of it, but I had an SM to help me mix it, who was very good um, and made it better than I could have done. But I, that was all my editing and stuff. How did, you th- how did you think like that? How do you mean? Because it's so confusing. No, no. I, sometimes, here's, here's, 
here's what I mean, I think. Sometimes I listen to radio and I go, oh my God, I don't know that I could ever have done that because I don't know how to think like that. Um, I, don't, I mean, it's a process to make uh, something like that, I guess. Um, you know, you put things together and you don't start thinking like that until you have some bits that could potentially become that, I guess. So I, did you just try it out? I'm just gonna yeah. start. I'm just gonna start cutting things up and moving. Yeah, around. I mean, I also I, <laughs> this didn't work out, but I, I put the script through a shredder um, and uh, <laughs> brought it to Iggy. He was he was not up for sort of jumbling the script together physically, but um, I mean, cut up is basically you know radio editing has quite a lot to do with the the, the cut up method and vice versa. Um, so we tried to reflect that a bit. Yeah. Do folks have questions? Do you guys want to come? There's a mic. If you want to come up to the mic, that'd be great. Anybody? Hi, I'm Dan. Uh, really liking this work. What, when you were doing research, did you uh, listen to the, the tape cut-ups? Yeah, there's some of that in there. Um, he did some at the BBC, uh, and I got access to those. Um, I didn't let them run very long because <laughs> they're very. Uh, they, I, I think they're slightly dated, um, and you'd lose you'd lose people a bit if you played it in its entirety. But I had little clips of it. Did, did you use had that approach at all in building your the, this cut up section, or do you just rely on the the physical manuscript cut ups approach? Uh, yeah, I tried to be in, inspired by that bit um, to make that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Other questions? Anybody? Wait, wait, I have a question. Bring it. Um, uh, my question is, uh, just because I'm not familiar with a lot of radio in Britain, um, what's, what are the most interesting programs there that you love that you think are kind of doing interesting, innovative stuff that we could listen to? That's the thing, isn't it? Because it's American imports or what's in Britain. Uh, you know, that... Uh, um, uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of one-offs that are very good, one-off documentaries. I mean, and, and the thing about BBC Radio as well is that they give the opportunity to create one-off documentaries that are contained within themselves and not part of a series, um, which it doesn't seem NPR uh, allows for. Um, instead of doing sort of a longer strand or a longer series, you can do single half-hour documentaries just because, or, be, well, there's normally reasons for it, um, and those go out on air. Uh, so there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, is there any show? Desert Island Discs is good. Um, that's a sort of interview-based program. Uh, what else? Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. Is it Falling Tree Productions? Can someone correct me on that? Is Falling Tree? Is Alan here? No. No. Falling Tree is, does a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah. They're our sort of friendly rival. Oops. Yeah, that's all right. Um, oh, the reunion. Oh, sorry, I should have plugged the company. Uh, the reunion's very good. Um, uh, it's it's a really simple format, but it's um, normally quite amazing. Uh, it's just a presenter in a room with five people that w witnessed an event, and then there's archive brought in, and, and they're sort of reliving it in the room, in the studio. So there's a lot of sort of really intimate re revelatory moments, uh, radio moments. Um, yeah. It's sort of hit and miss. There, I mean, a lot of st there's, there's a lot of very s just straight stuff. Um, uh, but yeah. 
there's good stuff over there. It's not all stodgy. <laughs> they think you guys, th- well, Americans apparently think the BBC is really stodgy, and they think you guys are really navel gazy. Um, so, and I don't believe either of those things. <laughs> just to say, I hope, hope to bridge that gap a bit. Sorry, do you have a question? Uh, I'm curious if you got any feedback from Iggy himself. No, I don't even know if he's heard the program. Um, his, I sent it over to the agent, and he sent back, me back an email. Said, "I wish you didn't use so much of of Iggy, sort of offcuts of Iggy." Uh, so I'm not sure he heard it. He knows about this. <laughs> I didn't get any comments on that, but there you go. He's busy being a rock star. Hi. Hi. You mentioned that the piece was 56:30. Was it originally designed as an hour-long piece, or did it just become clear at some point that it needed to breathe that much, or was it going to be shorter? Um, it's 56:30 because you need a, 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 an announcement for the program at the top, and then an announcement for the program at the end of the bit, so that so it needs to fit within the hour in the on the BBC schedule. Um, so you always knew it was going to be 56.30. Yeah. There was never a time when you thought, all right, we'll make this 20-minute piece. No. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, we yeah. need to make this a whole bunch longer. No. No, I always knew it was going to be that length. Hi, I'm Hello. Julie. Um, and I was wondering, I mean, I think something that a lot of us struggle with when we're doing narration that we wrote ourselves is sounding natural. And I wonder if you had to coach Gee Pop at all on that, especially because he didn't write what he was reading. Yeah, I I think that's it's a, that's a sort of uh, British experience having to sort of produce a script with somebody in a documentary. Uh, there's things you say, you know, you say keep the energy up, uh, pretend I'm just across the table from you, speak to me, don't speak to anybody else. You know, these words should sound like they're coming into your head uh, naturally. You shouldn't sound like you're reading. Uh, and I think a lot of patients, what I tend to do is, is just let them read the script and don't stop them um, for the first 15, 20 minutes and then come back on almost everything because they need to do it again. Um, but uh, you sort of learn by doing that. I don't know, does, does NPR do, have to do that very much? Do they have to produce scripts of people? Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but you're the one that did all that, though. Yeah, I am. And so do people write scripts for their stories? Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. But the producer is normally the person that's at the helm anyways. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's so not somebody else's words. The also the narrator. Words. Yeah. I mean, there might be exceptions. So I mean, there must be exceptions to it, but I yeah. generally... Sure. Yeah. It's like David Attenborough doesn't write that script. <laughs> he shows up and he's, yeah. he's, and he's David. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I liked about the documentary was that it just wasn't all glowing. Yeah. Um, and it showed how complicated Burroughs is. And I wanted to play a clip that, that does that. And it is... Yeah, we'll do this. Ready? But not everyone appreciates the Burroughs myth. I, I don't just take the, the Burroughs myth with a pinch of salt. I view it as an unpleasant slug crawling across the lawn of, of literature. And I like to pour salt on it. The writer will self. Do you like his stuff? You said yes I to told you, you I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Known smartass. <laughs> when I was at school, I, I got the uh, English prize when I was 16, and I asked for a copy of The Naked Lunch. I used to have it with the sort of school coat of arms on a book plate in the front of it. Um, having used heroin yourself, 
I, mean, I think used is a bit of an understatement. I was a heroin addict on and off for pushing a quarter of a century. So, <laughs> For myself, uh, I find the whole Burroughs myth pretty repulsive, actually, because I understand what happened to me. I was, uh, you know, an addict in waiting. You know, I got my form prize or my English prize of the naked lunch, and, and a year and a half later I was sticking needles in my arm. Was it that direct for you? Well, I'm not saying it made me do it. I'm saying that my attraction to Burroughs' work was very much to do with the mythos, and particularly to do with the sort of mythos that surrounded him because of being a heroin addict. And that's the point about Burroughs, is that he exists. You could be lying in some pestilential, piss-soaked squat in the bowels of the city, listening to some moron, totaled on drugs, drooling on, and talking about Burroughs because Burroughs was their Leon Trotsky. He was their Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the Pope. I'd rather belong to the priesthood than be with the guy who was lying on the carpet drooling about them. That's all. That's all there is to it, though. Anyone recognize that music? That's, that's this American Life music, and I stole that. <laughs> Do you know who it is? That's uh, Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how did you... What did you learn about Burroughs in the process? Um, I don't think he was a particularly good man. Um, he was a very polite and gentlemanly man and, and treated others pretty well formally. Um, but... I've written this down. Um, he's also, he was also very self-destructive, and I think other people were involved in that self-destruction. Um, and he, you know, killed his wife. It's 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 debatable whether or not that was murder. Um, but th- th- there's something wrong there. Um, I think uh, he's an incredibly complicated man, and there's particularly for Burroughs and the Beats in general. I think there's quite a lot of apologists out there for them um, that don't take on the full complexity of who they were. They were miserable human beings, you know, they, they, you know, they were, and weren't necessarily the best individuals. So I, I, that's what we tried to reflect in the program. I didn't want it to just all be apologists saying this is this gr- a great man and this is why he's great, because that's boring as hell. Um, so Will Self was very useful in that, in that regard, because he's a, you know, entrenched pessimist, <laughs> and he was very good. Yeah, the guy spits tape. That he's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. He has a vocabulary that's extraordinary, um, and he he uses it like a weapon. Um, and it was cool to hang out with him because he he. Uh, Do people know Will Self in the states? Yeah. No. Yes. No. Yes. Um, that was cool. It was. I was in his writing room with his post-its everywhere, and it was a very creative space with all these old typewriters lying around and I've I've, um, used him in other programs and we amazingly get along pretty well (laughs) Um. so there are a lot of swear words there's descriptions of sexual acts there's uh, you know unabashed support of drug use there's pedophilia (laughs) thank you yeah Um, I, I can't imagine this would air many places in the United States how did this air on the BBC is that this sort of thing not normal, but is it okay on the BBC? Yeah. What the, time of night did this air, or eight, day? 8 p.m. Um, there's no FCC in the States, or in Britain. Um, <laughs> there's no watershed. 
you can I mean, there's informal. You're not going to have a program where people are swearing the whole time. You know, it's sort of informally enforced, um, but there isn't that sort of regulation. Uh, can I interrupt for a second? What's a watershed? Uh, sort of the gates opening for adult content. You know, it's like a like a dam bursting. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I thought maybe you were saying that there's no you know, time of day that's set aside specifically for that kind of content. Because in the United States, you can play indecent material starting from 10, to a, uh, 10 p.m. to 6, right? There's a blue zone, as it's called, right? To 6 a.m. Yeah. That's pretty late. Um, yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, th- there was a program that was... Uh, can I say the F word? I don't know. Uh, Bring it. Uh, there was a program on the history of the word fuck that went out on, uh, in the same slot. And that had quite a lot of F words in it. Um, because they're talking about the word fuck, and that would not go out in the States, I imagine. Um, nope, it'd be one long tone. Yeah. 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 That wouldn't be good, the beat program. Um, but, uh, yeah. I don't know, I think, does, does that sound pretty romantic to people that you could swear on the radio? Does that, is that appealing? Or is it, you know, I don't know. Yes, it is. You'd, you'd like to be able to swear on the radio in the States. I think, I, like I think the idea is to let people speak freely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how it feels to me. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, not only are there enough restrictions and enough of a culture uh, that says don't speak freely, but we actually step several yards past where the line actually is, mm. and so things feel kind of sanitized a lot. I think, I think honesty is a legitimate editorial consideration, uh, and that is, that is a reason why swear words could be in a program. Um, you, I, but I think you still need that reason. Like, for example, in that clip where he says it's a Ouija board, he after that says it's a fucking Ouija board, mm. but we cut that out, because we didn't have an editorial reason for using it, because it wasn't, it was just a throwaway F word instead right. of a <laughs> good F word. Um, I have one more question for you, and then um, uh, we want to bring Joe up to, to interview Joe about his piece. Um, I was told by a little bird that I should ask you about luck. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't think, yeah, radio producers are not gods, uh, and they don't, they don't always get it right, and there's quite a lot of luck involved in every program uh, that we, I don't think we would readily admit to. I was very lucky with this program. Um, and I'm, yeah, I don't know if I should say that or not, but that's true. Uh, you just get, you, I, I, I think it's incredibly, for every program, it's very important to do a ton of planning. Um, but I also think that you should be prepared to throw that plan away at any given moment. But if you didn't do that planning, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be as lucky, I think. I, I don't know if that, that was, was that okay? Yeah. Yeah, it's spot on. Is there anything else you wanted to add about the, the program uh, that we didn't cover? Uh, I'm moving back to Chicago, uh, if anyone has work or wants to work together or all that. So uh, I unashamedly will say that, um, bringing my wife over, um, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm also, Whistledown is a fantastic company, and if, you, if anyone has ideas that wants to go out on BBC Radio, um, we know how to speak to them uh, and get things commissioned if anyone um, needs help there. Um, so, yeah. Well, congratulations on your award. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk. Sure. It's great. Um, so, Joe, do you want to come up? And then you can go have Should a beer, I? dude. Yeah. Well, or, or you can hang out what here. What time is it? It's your call. It's quarter off. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, in, in England, it's, what is it? Yeah. It's 6 p.m. in England, so I could be right there. You're all set. Yeah.
Hey. Hi, should I sit here? Uh, sure. I've hogged a lot of space. I want to say this because you're in the room, but um, I, man, the way you used, I mean, Iggy Pop's agent is wrong. The way you used all that um, the accident <laughs> stuff, I just really loved. Hi. Uh, I, I have two things to say before we start. The first is I'm really glad that you're here right now because you just ran a really great panel discussion down there, and I know how taxing it can be. So thank you for doing two panels in a row. It wasn't my idea, but... I know, I understand. <laughs> I understand. We, yeah, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the other thing I have to say is, like, I have a serious radio crush on Joe Richmond. So... <laughs> Um, so, uh, Joe's, uh, we're going to talk about Joe's piece that, oh, actually, you need to queue up the, uh, the spot here that we're going to do. And so I, I just I, say about luck, too, just to jump in yeah, on please. luck. Oh, my God. I mean, like, luck is the foundation for, I mean, everything we do, but I think, you know, so much of good radio is just, like, you have to, like, expect it. You know, that's, you have to kind of, like, make room for it and hope for it and plan for it and, you know, all the thing about, you you make your own luck and all that kind of stuff, but it, you just have to, like... It's what you're always looking for. So. It just I falls totally believe in luck. Yeah, yeah. Are there, is there anything that you do to uh, bring luck into the process? Um, well, I mean, the diaries are based on that, really. You know, someone has the tape recorder, so it's there for when luck happens. So, yeah, it's a little sort of built into the form to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, I, I think, like, when I was just more of a, a news reporter, too, just always, always, you know, you know, the the kind of cliche things about having the tape recorder on and don't turn it off and all that kind of stuff that, that, that we all know when we're, when we're um, making stories, you know, it's just part of it. You're just kind of uh, waiting, looking for the thing that you wouldn't expect. So I, I feel like I, I need to read my script because I spent a lot of time writing it. Um, <laughs> I felt that way in the last session. I had this whole thing. I'm like, wait, wait, no, you guys aren't following the, yeah. the plan here. So, uh, <laughs> but for folks who don't know Joe or don't have a, quite the crush on him that I do, I feel like I need to introduce him. Um, Joe is a Peabody Award-winning producer and the founder of Radio Diaries. And basically he gives, tapes, he gives tape recorders to people to report on their own lives. And over the past two decades, Joe has told the stories of teenagers and octogenarians, prisoners and prison guards, bra saleswomen and seltzermen. ZZ Top, I don't know that piece. Yeah, it's a little bit of a cheat for the ZZ Top was in our um, Robert Johnson Public Assaults piece. Uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top was in it, so we didn't really do a thing about him, but we had him in there. All right, when are you going to do a ZZ Top piece? I don't know. He was great. We actually got a lot of social media hits. <laughs> the ZZ Top fans. Now we know why ZZ Top was listed in his bio. Uh, ZZ Top, Nelson Mandela. Ray, I shouldn't go past, fast past that. And you did this incredible series of documentaries on Mandela. You had five 20-minute pieces, right, on NPR? Five uh, days in a row? Not quite 20-minute, but yeah, it was a week-long series. There were 13-minute in the window, and then one of them was longer. Uh. It was stunning. If you haven't heard the Mandela series, you need to carve out the time to listen to the Mandela series. Um, you've also, you do projects that air on NPR, This American Life, the BBC, and uh, Radio Diaries podcast is now part of Radiotopia. <laughs> That's great. You teach at the Graduate School of Journalism, and, and Joe was just at the Transom Story workshop, what was it, a week or two ago, and, and the students are still reeling in a positive way from it um, because you were incredibly inspiring. So to talk about the piece that Joe produced that won an award uh, here at Third Coast, 
1996, Joe gave tape recorders to teenagers around the country, and they documented their lives on a cassette tape. From their recordings, Joe produced a series called Teen Diaries, and the series included stories about a boy with Tourette's, a girl who had difficulties with her parents over her sexuality, and several other stories, including Melissa, teen mom. Melissa documented her birth and the challenges that she faced afterward as a young person with a child. So 16 years later, Joe gave out recorders again to a few of the teens who recorded themselves for Teen Diaries. And so Teenage Diaries Revisited, Melissa's story is an award winner here this year at Third Coast. And as it's, it's stunning, you'll, I'm gonna, you're going to hear a lengthy clip of it here in just a second. Um, the whole series should definitely win an award as far as I'm concerned. In the piece, Melissa's now an adult. Her son, Isaiah, is 16. She also has a six-year-old son, and she works for Cablevision. She works in customer service on the night shift. And what's so amazing about the story and all the diary work that Joe does, really it's the honesty that comes through in the tape. It's actually stunning how honest people are uh, with the tape recorders. I feel like, I feel like, the, I feel like the diarist is talking directly to me like there's nothing in between myself and the diaries i mean there's a radio in between us or a podcast or something like that but really it's just the two of us and i'm just listening in uh, on this person's life and so i'd like us to listen to a couple of clips from the story i've edited them together just to save a little bit of time and we start with a scene um, at isaiah's school So I'm here in um, Zaya's school, and today's my day off work. Um, I wanted to talk to the teacher, see how he's doing. Just waiting at the guidance counselor's office. Yes. Hello. Hello. All right. How's he doing? He's doing much better. Much better. Isaiah is in a special class for kids that need um, extra help. I was just a little worried from last, you know, episode. Yeah. His body is, is fine now. There's no problem with his body. He doesn't have a problem walking. He doesn't have a problem playing sports, you know. Everything's normal. But his IQ is a 79. So it's like borderline. And um, his brain is unable to retain a lot of information. You know, he can remember that game. But when he goes to school, he can't remember that book that he read yesterday. So it's the learning part of it is, is the only thing that's left for him to conquer. Hello. Hey, Zay. How was your day? Good. Ready to go home. Did you learn anything? Yeah, I learned a couple stuff. You learned a couple stuff? So, Zaya, anything you need to tell me? No? Isaiah got into some trouble today. The teacher told me that he was teasing. Teasing a kid who also has a disability. Isaiah, when you go back to school tomorrow, can you think you can say I'm sorry to the boy? And don't do it again? I won't do it again, but I'm not saying sorry. Does he make fun of you? No! Does anybody make fun of everybody? But listen, we're not, you don't have to be like everybody else. You are Isaiah. You are not everybody else. We're not perfect, okay? We both got issues, right? So can you promise me to stop making fun of kids? Can you? Yes. All right. Hey. I'm chilling. 
We're just talking. <laughs> so, let's see. When you were still in my belly, I recorded how my life was and how you were made. And, you know, I was very young, only three years older than you. Yeah. So now I'm going to actually play you the CD that I made. And it was all about you and me. Yeah. That's you as a baby. Today is October the 9th. Your birthday. <laughs> and I have a brand new baby boy, seven pounds. His name is Isaiah Seto. <laughs> and he was born at 1.30, right? 1.30, right? I can't believe this whole thing was inside of me. <laughs> it's funny to you? <laughs> yes. Um... It was hard. It was hard. You were an extreme change in my life. A lot of people didn't want me to have you. People tried to talk me out of it. Said that I wasn't going to be a good mother. And I said I was going to love my baby no matter what. Love him more than anybody ever loved me. You understand that? Yes. <laughs> kind of mushy. <laughs> what else? How your life be different if you didn't have me? Well, if I didn't have you, um, I could say I was lonely before you was born. And you was born, it was almost like I wasn't lonely anymore. So no matter how bad things got, I knew I always had you. You know, I felt bad about your father. I felt like it was my fault that I chose the wrong person to be your father. You know, I tried to replace him with other men to be your father. (laughs) But... I knew at the end you were just mine, and I was fine with that. I was just hoping that you would be fine with that. Are you fine with that? Yeah. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. What's that noise from? It's like when you play the game. They say, dun, 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 dun. Goodbye. Dun, 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 dun. Game over. <laughs> Love that grin. <laughs> Let me stop it. Yes. So, here I am, 34 years old. You know, I've been a mom half of my life. If I can do it over again, I would want to be a kid longer. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I was 10, one of the homes I was in, they used to send us to the summer camp, Camp Squanto. I just remember the orange Indian t-shirt I used to wear on the top of my bathing suit. And um, just want to make sure you were a good swimmer. And for the test, we had to tread water. You just treaded water until you just couldn't tread water no more. And I remember it was about 12 of us. 
You see one by one. You see one person tread for five minutes. Next person, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And I think at 35 minutes, the last three people were there. And they were struggling. And this boy was looking at me like, this girl's still treading. And he gave up. I treaded for almost an hour and a half that day. And I would have kept treading, but they told me to stop. It was probably one of the happiest days of my life. Never thought about it before, but my whole life is treading water. You know? You have no support under your feet. You have no support over your head. You can't hold on to nothing. You're just out there. Keep it moving. Now you can applaud. So you you make it sound so easy. Is it? Um, <laughs> no, actually, you know, I think sometimes, like, you know, sometimes it pisses me off that it, like, it sounds like it's just so, like, you just hold the microphone up and you just capture reality as it happens, like... No, man. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, no, obviously, you know, uh, all these stories, it's, you know, like 40 hours of tape and it's all sorts of stuff. But I think the hardest thing about these stories is just constructing something that feels like a narrative out of all this found tape. I mean, it's kind of a puzzle that I love and totally love about it. But, um, you know, when it's more of a contained narrative, it's easy. It's like a sort of a day in the life or something like that and you kind of have the frame but figuring out the frame, figuring out the structure, that, that's the part for me that, that's the hardest. What do you do to, to guide the diarists? How often are you in touch with them? Are you listening to tape on a regular basis and saying, hey, look, you need to hold the mic closer, beware of wind, uh, who's this? aren't there other people in your life you need to talk? Like how, how involved, on a, like in this particular case, how involved were you, were, were you with Melissa? Yeah, uh, uh, pretty involved. I mean, the, the tech stuff isn't, that big a deal that kind of works out sometimes it doesn't but usually it does and it's more the um you know figuring out what to record and prodding them and kind of pushing and as you mentioned about listening to the tape there is this thing of like this is especially true when for the teenage diarist that the sense of their recording for me and you need to kind of respond and listen to it and they need to feel like it's going somewhere it's not just going into a hole somewhere so that kind of feedback is important um you know, back with the Teenage Diaries series, it was like, you know, they had tape recorders sometimes for a year. Um, they were teenagers, they had time. I was younger, I had time. This is a little bit more of a, a f- efficient process with these grown-up diaries. So it was, you know, the, they had recorders for like three months or so, depending. Um, yeah. But they, since they're adults, do they have less time? Yeah, I mean, that was one of... There were a lot of differences, like, seeing the sort of teenage version and the grown-up version. But the biggest one is, uh, you know, the, in terms of the advantages of doing this stuff with teenagers, they have time. Huge one. They're not, like... They don't have kids and jobs and lives and, you know... Um, they... You know, the big one, actually, is that teenagers have this, like, you know, sense that everything they say is important. And that's so useful. 
because um, growing up, all of a sudden, you know, we're self-conscious, we're kind of editing ourselves, and we just like, why do you, is this important? You know, so um, it works well with teenagers. But for me, these stories, obviously, going back to these lives 16 years later, you know, it was a hugely, you know, powerful project for me. You know, I, they were they are now the age that I was when I was working with them for originally, and just remembering sort of what my life was like, their lives were like that time, and to have that kind of longitudinal um, thing was just totally wonderful and moving for me. Um, you know, that, like time, time's like the fourth dimension. You sort of add that to the story and all of a sudden it becomes something else. You don't narrate in the diaries. I mean, it's rare for you to narrate. I know you do some and you've been doing more lately, but you don't, do you ever wish you could just narrate? I mean, wouldn't your life be a whole hell of a lot easier if you just narrated? I'm just learning that lately. It turns out, um, yeah, writing is useful. Um, yeah, it, you know, we have been doing more with the podcast and with some other stories, so it's been... but. You know, with the diaries, I, I think, um, you know, we did this, the thing I played at Transom, this one story that we did, uh, All Things Considered version that was non-narrated, and then a um, narrated version for This American Life, and we played, it, played them back-to-back, and it was really interesting to think about the pros and cons, the kind of advantages of both, but in, in, that, case, in that particular story, it's like, wow, you got a lot more out of it when you can really write and ask some of these larger questions and the mysteries of that that are hard to do. With, without the narration, you're sort of on this kind of like a narrower narrative track. It's hard to do these kind of side roads and, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, these tangents and stuff. But in terms of diaries, no, I mean, like, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, do you want... Uh, Melissa in the passenger seat as someone who's stuck in traffic listening to her story and all things considered? Or do you want me in the passenger seat telling them about Melissa? It's, you know, it's just that, that simple, um, that direct communication between someone telling their own life story and the listener, I think, is just something that happens in radio in a way that doesn't happen any, in any other medium in the same way. Because you don't narrate, do you feel hidden? Um, yeah, I suppose to the listener. I don't feel it myself. I mean, I know how much of my R, as in Radio Diaries, hand is in there. You know, there's a lot of direction. There's tons of editing, obviously. It's it's certainly not, as we said, this, you know, organic life-as-it-happens process. It's a complete, it's a very constructed, directed thing. But, um, but yeah, I think I, I think I like the idea of the invisibility of the production and the hand there in terms of, you know, it's interesting to think about this ethics conversation earlier and like transparency versus invisibility. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about, but that's with these diaries. That's what, that's what I'm after. I uh, went online and looked at the piece at the NPR site and I read through some of the comments. And one of the comments that struck me was someone had written, why do I care? Could you respond to that person? Oh, easily. I mean, like, the, the best thing, I, 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 one thing I love about these diaries is, is that they air on the network news program next to the news from about, like, Ebola and Syria. And I just love that stuff of, like, paying attention to it and you have to, and you, you know, you bump up against that. So that's really important to me. What you get with that is someone who, you know, I like the, that the audience is people who weren't necessarily looking for that sort of a story and didn't expect it. And so you get some people who are like, wow, I, do, I didn't want that, but 
I loved it. And you get a lot of people who are like, I didn't want that and I still don't want it. And um, I want my news. And so that's just part of the territory. Um, as far as why do I care? I mean, uh, you know, um, I, I see Allison is in the audience. Allison, all things considered, was, was the producer of this series from NPR. And her golden rule, which we didn't get to, was um, remember that, what is it? Shoot. Remember that. Uh, People don't necessarily care. You have to make them care. I'm misquoting it. But um, that's the whole purpose of these, really, the diaries a lot of times, is to take these issues that people have such dehumanized kind of attitudes about or just kind of, you know, like, and to just make them turn in, turn them into real people. You know, these, like, uh, you know, issues that we think about in terms of numbers and agendas and all the stuff. And all of a sudden it's a real person and we think differently. So that's that's the kind of why do we care part of it. I, I, I actually was floored by that comment because it's someone's life we're talking about. Like, how could you not care? Oh, there are so many people who don't want to hear someone's life in the middle of their news. I get that. Oh, no. <laughs> what else do we have is our lives, though, right? Well, I'm sorry. I don't need to preach to you. No, but I mean, like, I just come want to on. talk I mean, to like, that if person. You're, if, you're, if, if, you're a, if you're a journalist or you do this kind of work, like, if you don't get some comments that hate what you do, then... That's you know, then you're not doing something right. That's totally. I have no problem with that at all. No. Well, we have a bit of a surprise, don't we? We do. We do. Um, you, you talk about golden rules. My golden rule, my main golden rule is that you have to be. You have to imagine. The test is you have to imagine that you're listening to the story with the, the subject in the room. Um, and luckily we were. <laughs> Melissa, do you want to come up? Uh, Melissa just flew in just now. best thing about this trip, I would say for you, is uh, you don't get the opportunity that often to be without your, your kids. That's true. <laughs> it's like a vacation. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your, your flying in early and, and willingness to be up here. Sure. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Sure. What, why, why, <laughs> why did you do this? Why did you say yes to Joe twice? Um, I guess the diary idea, I really liked it. I did not know how many people was going to listen to it. For the record, I thought it was just going to be a group of people listening to a girl's story, say, oh, it's sad. Didn't think it would ever be. I was 17. I didn't want to write in a diary book, so I thought speaking into the microphone was a lot easier. And how about the second time? Joe, really, come on, leave me alone? No? No, actually, that didn't come around until I was in my 30s. Uh, the second one, I wanted to continue it. You know, life was so much going on. Um, when you have so much in your life, you don't stop to think about things. So thought it was still a good idea. We didn't have much computers and tweeting and Facebook going on. I think we had a MySpace then. So we didn't, I didn't see myself anywhere on the internet or ever even heard my story other than my own copy of my CD. It's actually a, it's actually a really interesting story about what happens. And so, so Melissa did two, actually two diaries when two. you were a teenager about having Isaiah and then a year later. Raising Isaiah. And then you, um, and then you disappeared. I did. Um, and what happened was, and I'll just say kind of a background. Disappear. You, had, you make it sound like I got kidnapped. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, Melissa had a, a, a very tough life. I mean, like tons of foster homes, adoption, 
group homes, all that kind of stuff. And then you had Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And then I would say you disappeared from my life and also the people around your life who, I mean, the people that I knew that were connected to you and you left your city. So I, to me, you disappeared and I lost touch with you for about a decade. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, I got an email. I did. I Googled yeah. myself one day. Um, I was doing a project and um, somebody said, hey, you ever Googled yourself? And I'm like, no, my name is so common. How am I going to find myself? And I seen this big picture of me and Zaya when he was a baby. And I'm like, where did this come from? And I clicked on it and I seen Joe Richmond. I remembered your name. And I said, oh, my God, I know he's probably wondering whatever happened to me. I got to let him know I'm alive. So that's how I yeah. sent that email. I didn't even know if you re- actually read it. I thought maybe he was a star and your secretary would read it. We don't know who you are. You, you don't really understand the environment of public radio. No, no. Yeah. Um, but, that, but that email was, well, what happened was we thought we would do a little story. We'd just get a little interview with you and Isaiah or something. Mm-hmm. And it started to become this bigger story. And then that led to the series Teenage Diaries Revisited. So it was really that email that birthed this whole this project. Glad to help. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> do you get something from doing the diaries? Do you get, is there something that, that you derive from doing it? Um, it's hard to explain. Um, you know, when people go through a lot, a, lot, a lot of trauma in their lives, they go to therapy for help. Well, I hate therapy. And Teenage Diary became my therapy. Like, when I had the 10 years of no diary, I almost started writing, and, oh, my God, my handwriting is horrible. I couldn't read it. So... When he asked me to do it again, I was more than happy to, even though I only had like 10 minutes a day for you. It was harder as I got older. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This story came from 10 minutes a day? I, well, it would go like all day. I would carry it around in my pocketbook without people knowing. Like I was at work. Don't tell nobody. And I would hide it because I was so busy. All I did was work and talk to the kids and try to sleep. And in between, I would try to remember to turn the tape on. So... I tried my best to hide it everywhere I went. I just carried it around. Sometimes I forgot it was even on, and you would hear things, and Joe said, ooh, we can't put that in there. <laughs> so. I, in terms of transparency and ethics, just because, you know, um, <laughs> uh, one thing that the diarists do get out of it, and I should just say this, is uh, uh, we pay them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember that. Not, it's, yeah, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's not a lot of money, more. and it's sort of... But, um, but my... In, uh, the the model for this thing is really not like their subject and I'm the reporter. It is they're the reporter and I'm their editor producer. So um, it's not a lot, a lot like a salary money, but it's a little bit of token money and it's kind of the. It's principle. one of those when you ask somebody to do something, they say, oh, I don't know if I want to spend that much time to do something. Which I give you twenty dollars a table. Oh, let's do this. So it does give you that. Like that but yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure that we have time for you guys to ask questions. So I'm going to ask one while you guys think about what you want to ask and, and step to the mic. Um, did you ever learn something about yourself as you were talking? So you said it was a kind of therapy, and I'm just sort of wondering if you stumbled across something that you're, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know I thought that. Probably all of it. I was, when I was speaking to that microphone, I really spoke like if no one was ever going to hear it. And I think sometimes we ignore our problems and we live our day by day, try not to worry about the past, try not to worry about the issues, just live for the moment. You only have 24 hours a day. So when you listen to it, you're like, wow, did I really say that? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I shouldn't have told nobody. That should have been a secret. So it's not that you learn new things. It's just when you hear it, you're like, oh, my God, that was really me. Mm. I mean, one, <laughs> one thing that can happen in these stories is like it's again it's not like um, 
documenting just life as it is, you're, you know, like you never had conversations like that with Isaiah, <laughs> but because of the microphone, you did. You had a couple of them. So that was something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But what, what did you, how did, what happened out of those conversations? Well, I think my son felt, you know, better after the conversation because he probably, he's very nonchalant. He can care less. I care about it more than him. But when I brought up the situation with him, he was like, hmm, this is a different conversation. We're not talking about clothes or grades or me getting in trouble. So I kind of, he was, he was curious. He was very, like, wondering, like, what's going on with that? He was, he was interested, hmm. which is hard to get him to do, get interested. Would he not have been interested if the mic hadn't been there? I think he was a little afraid of the mic. A little? Yeah, so I wondered if it got in the way or it helped. I think that's kind of what you It did the same thing. Know. It helped because he actually wanted to speak into it, but he was afraid of, what is that? What is it going to do? You know, is that part of a conversation? You know, he was a little scared of it. Well, you had conversations you wouldn't have had otherwise about yeah. why you had him and about his disability. Correct. It was like a, you know, the microphone did its job. It actually brought out what he needed to say because he doesn't speak much. Those words you heard, those were a lot of words for him. Right, Joe? (laughs) The microphone did its job. That's Mm -hmm. an awesome, I love that. Can we use that from now on? Tweet it. (laughs) Tweet it. (laughs) The microphone did its job. That's stellar. That's great. Good. Hey, you guys. I'm Catherine Stifter. I um, run a documentary project called The View From Here that was very much inspired by Joe's work. We, do, we don't do diaries, but I send reporters with, with uh, recorders to go get where you guys are kind of getting with the diaries. And we have, used a, we have sent people home with, report, with recorders and been amazed. Um, I'm curious because we're always, Melissa, you may not know this, but we're always trying to measure audience. Like, you know, how many people listen to this? How successful are we? How do you measure the success of your story in your life? What have you used it for? I haven't used it for anything, actually. I kept it to myself. I don't tell no one I work. None of my friends know. My own sister hasn't heard it. Really? Yeah. And I felt almost like the audience that actually was listening to it, that's who I wanted to hear my story. Um, I didn't want to insult my mother. That was another reason. We started being close, and I didn't want those wounds to open back up. So I try to keep it away from from her as much as possible. Because you said some... I did say some straightforward things that I think she would probably cry if she heard and felt guilty and bad. And even though you probably think, well, she should, well... I don't know. I don't think payback is, is a good thing. Huh. So it's my therapy. You guys listen, so that's all that matters. I would say that most of us wouldn't do half as well as you did if we had mics and recorders put in our hands and asked us to take it home. You know. So thank you for your story. You're welcome. Yeah, it's insanely difficult just to talk into them. I mean, I cannot do it. I can't, it's why I script. I mean, when I go to do it, it's called a stand up sometimes when you go out into the field and you're just standing in this particular place and you're trying to report what's happened. I have no ability at all to do that. And that's that's what you're doing. It's amazing what you're able to do with a microphone. Do you know that? When you speak from the heart, sometimes the words just come out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Note to self. (laughs) Great. Try the heart. <laughs> I'm going to try that. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, sort of, you, know, you mentioned sort of there's, 
the discomfort or fear when you're doing it. How do you both navigate that as a collaboration? Those things that you're like, ooh, I wish I didn't say that, or, uh, you know, how do you navigate that as you're putting it together and as you're involved in it? You want to answer that? Well, I, I mean, so I'll start off by saying that we there's kind of a, a rule going in that, it, I mean, again, how this is different from being a subject in a story that I would do for NPR or something, that um, they can decide if, some, if they don't want something in their story. They have editorial control. It, um, I kind of fudge it a little bit in the sense that I say, I'm going to tell you what's in it. You can decide. You record freely. If you decide later you want it in it, just let me know. But I don't play them the story. It's funny because I was thinking the golden rule. Imagine that you're playing the story. But I don't play it for them before it airs because then I think it opens it up to a different kind of editorial eye on their mind. How do I sound? But I tell them what's in it. And there have been a couple cases with diaries where, say, the teenager or the parent didn't want some topic, something in the story. And, And we've honored that. So the question is, how do they get connected, the two of you? And the well, other with me, when I was in one of the group homes, um, I had a mentor there, a staff. Her name was Rachel Barrett. She's a beautiful person. And um, Rachel's friends with Joe. And Rachel basically knows my life story. And I believe they got together and had a conversation, and she brought it to his attention that, hey, I think Melissa would be great to do that video, that audio for you. And Joe met up with me one day, asked me if I wanted to do it. Yeah, that's how it all started. And after we connected, after a decade, she hadn't seen you either in those ten Correct. years, and so we did a little kind of event. And that was you guys had seen each other for the first time. And I remember that. Yeah. a couple of years ago. I have a question, uh, John Miller, independent producer, and uh, great, great stuff you, you've been doing. Uh, there's a tension between a story and a profile and a diary, or there's a difference between those three things. And I guess at some point in the making of a of a diary story, you have to find what the story is. And I wonder about both the relationship that you have with your tape and sort of getting rid of all the stuff that doesn't move the story forward, and also agreeing with, uh, coming to some sort of agreement with the subject on what the story is and whether that gets more and more focused as the process goes on. Yeah, I mean, Melissa's is a pretty easy one in terms of figuring out the story just it was her first story was about the birth of Isaiah and you know we talk about what makes a good diarist one of the things that made Melissa a good diarist is she recorded in the delivery room (laughs) I mean not all of it (laughs) (laughs) enough enough Um, so and then so 16 years later I mean she was the whole kind of impetus and you know frame of this series like so all of a sudden Isaiah could do his teenage diary now. So it was going to be about that with these kind of surprises about Isaiah's disability and, and some other things. Um, but that's the hardest part. It's like you can record all the stuff and life and all that, but like making it into a story is definitely the hardest part. Like what, what do you keep? What's the structure? How do you, what is it about? Um, so we talk about that, but also that's my job as we go. Right. I mean, you, you had a sense of what the story was about. And, of course, and, I, that was my life story. Right. I mean, I, mean, we, I told you to remove some stuff because it was uncomfortable to talk about and hear it. But right. it did Just good. A quick follow up, may I? Please. On, that, on, the, on the tension of story, uh, do you ever feel like you've oversimplified somebody's life by storifying it? Totally. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, oversimplified kind of, yeah. I mean, there are some things about Melissa's life that would that um, are more complicated than are in her story. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's inevitable, but also it is, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's something to be aware of. You know, it, it's tricky because I, I think sometimes about doing diaries on some level with all the complexities and kind of um, warts of someone's life that are good to put in a story. With this kind of work, you sort of do want to empathize. You want to root for the person on some level. So, like, you know, how do you do a diary with someone you just is, you don't like? I don't know. I've I've done stories about people that are that are never really like a diary where, on some level, you don't kind of fall for them a little bit. So I don't know. It might be a limitation. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, my name's Sarah. I have two questions. One's for Melissa and one's for Joe. So should I just ask them both? Is that okay if I ask? Them just both? let me know which one is mine. <laughs> okay. Yours is first. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, you said you didn't really want your family or your friends to hear the story, and you had this other audience in mind. And I was just wondering, who was that audience in your mind? Like, who were you imagining was going to be listening? And what, also, what did you want them to um, get out of it? Like, what were you hoping people would walk away from your story feeling like, and that's, you know, that's worth it? And then, and then my question for Joe, which is, like, totally different, <laughs> is... Um, you said there's 40 hours of tape. And I always, I've heard you say that before, and I always wonder, like, how do you listen to those 40 hours? Are you, like, cleaning your room? <laughs> like, and then you're, you know, just kind of letting it go in the background. You're like, oh, wait, 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 that was good. And you run over and stop the tape. Or, or do you, are you sitting at your computer taking notes the whole time? Like, what's that process of listening to that many hours of tape? So I actually want to know that too. Yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. It's such yeah, a good question. Like, that was actually really good. Um, <laughs> I'll just quickly answer, like, you know, when I first did the Teenage Diary series, I listened to all that tape. Now, um, we have people who help. <laughs> um, so sometimes people transcribe or, or log tapes. You know, um, Sarah, who's right there, Sarah K. Kramer um, is my co-producer on this series. And, and Nellie, I don't know if she's here. We had, you know, people who go through it, too. So, yeah. So my part of the story, my part is... Um, when I, I think when I did the story, I was hoping that the girls that I were in, in group homes with would be the ones listening. Um, that was my main focus. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> How was it listening just now? Emotional, sorry. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> um. Any other questions? Sorry. We'll take one or two more, and then we'll wrap up. Um, about your son, Isaiah, I mean, you said that he had trouble, I guess, with the learning disability. Has this experience, I guess, improved him? Does he talk more? Does he use the radio at all to improve that? Um, he, I don't think it's him using the radio. I think it's more me. Um, I don't no I don't I don't think on his part no but um it does make me try harder with him and he had never heard your story before no I kept it from him as well he was part of keeping it away from people it was off friends and families yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Can I ask you one last question? Sure. You have a room full of radio producers. What advice would you give them about doing diaries? That's a good question. Advice of producers. If someone's working... Hmm. If someone wants to work with, to do diaries. With teenagers. Yeah, or anybody, or really. Anybody. Yeah, as a diarist yourself, what advice would you give them? What would you tell them? Oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, you know, or whatever. I would say make the person feel comfortable to speak about their lives. Um, Joe was wonderful. He didn't pressure me, but he guided me at the same time, you know. He, um, you know, I got lost sometimes because I would just talk and talk and talk and I wouldn't even know what I was talking about. Just talk about my life. And Joe would listen and be like, that's great, but let's focus on this, you know. So it was, it was good that he guided me to where I needed to be because you can't get lost. Like a diary you could just write forever. You can talk forever, especially me. So that well, I, th- I think I totally did pressure you in times, but the, the trick is I think mm-hmm. one thing with diaries is like some people, they're just good at different things. Mm-hmm. And Melissa's a great talker. She'll just <laughs> sit on her bed and talk and be really honest and really reflective and deep. Um, but maybe she wouldn't want to go out and record like scenes and interviews and things. Other other folks will just go out and think like a radio producer and get all this stuff, but then they don't want to say anything intimate. So the pressure part is nudging what they are less good at doing or less um, comfortable doing. It was nudging but not pushy. It's, pu- it's pretty pushy, actually. I don't know. Maybe you don't, you don't remember. I'll, I'll just... I'll just say one thing about endings because I he just listening to this again. I was thinking about endings because I love the ending to the story, and I think that um and Deborah George, um, our editor in all these stories, is here. And I remember she was like, I think I fail at endings a lot because I think they need to conclude, and you're just going for an ending thing. And Deb always I think pushes me towards something more, you know, an anecdote, an image, or just something kind of like you know. And I just I love this this ending that feels so yeah, it's like a metaphor and a beautiful image and also says so much so endings are hard wicked only we're <laughs> going to end right there how's that thank you both and congratulations really thank you. great and thank you guys for coming we're going to do this again tomorrow at 1.45. We have three people I'm going to interview, Annie McEwen, Pat Walters, and Luke Malone. And I hope you can make it to that panel as well. Thanks so much for coming. And listen to House Sound. And there's stickers in the back of the room. Take some.